Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, another glorious episode of Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I did some research on a person. And I went across town to watch a movie. Here we go. This week, we're doing Toni Morrison. Her life, her legacy, what she's all about. And I watched The Pieces I Am, a Toni Morrison documentary. It is in a limited theatrical release right now. I was only playing in one theater in Los Angeles, if that tells you anything about <laughs> the limited release it's on. But it will be streaming September 17th on Amazon and, and, and likely elsewhere after that. And so, kind of a crazy way that the documentary, because she unexpectedly passed on August 5th of this year. Yeah, and the the official release date was actually June 21st of this year. Yeah. So this is this is coming and was made really kind of in her in in what was the, a bit of her final days, like the mm -hmm. last like year or so of her life, and that kind of gets compounded of what this film actually means by the time you see it, because it's giving you a profile of her career but then also comparing it with who she is now and how she spends her days yeah. and her pontificating about that. But um, we saw that she had passed and us being ignorant fools didn't know anything or got knew nothing. lost in the shuffle of her and her legacy. Yeah, I had I heard the name and maybe, maybe Oprah, you know, mm -hmm. like I, the lightest of the lightest. I, I was totally unacquainted with this. And as this has continued to be in the news, just the impact of her death, me and Taylor are like, we, we need to dig into this. Um, and so lo and behold, there's a documentary out. So he's been doing some research. And, and so we wanted to share with you why we think we should be sharing Toni Morrison yeah. more. Because I think it's a, it's a tragedy that people like you and me didn't get Us this being point of white view. men yeah, who don't know anything white about men. From the South, we didn't know anything about this, and I think that is just a tragedy, honestly. Um, yeah. So maybe you, you listening to this know more than we do, but yeah. hopefully we'll, if this is kind of a primer on her and her life and what she's about and all the stuff, and hopefully we'll get you interested in looking in her works or books or the documentary. Yeah, this can, uh, hopefully, if, uh, if you know more... You're better people than we are. <laughs> right. um, and if you're like us, we're going to give you the, yeah. the, the, the once over because there's so much to go into here. Uh, if you get into Toni Morrison after this, I mean, there's just there's plenty of material. Yeah. So she has written 11 novels, five children's books, two plays, a song cycle and an Ooh. opera. Wow. I didn't, um, I didn't she was also that. in all of those. She was a professor and at times an editor for other books and publications. And she wrote a million nonfiction things and essays and stuff like that as well. But her life is books and words mm -hmm. and reading and writing and teaching about those things. I guess uh, quickly, she she mm -hmm. was a writer working through through the 70s into the 80s. 90s um, and 2000s. Into the 90s and 2000s. But she didn't really get start to get noticed until the mid-90s. So and, that, and, that, uh, yeah. and that's kind of going to be a bit of what we cover here is just like, how is it that that perhaps some people were not exposed to Toni Morrison. What was mm -hmm. the slow burn of her exposure uh, to the popular conscious? So as far as like getting her into her writing, she was just saying, if you don't know anything about her, she was saying, what was driving me to write was the silence. So many stories told and unexamined. 
and that was from an interview in the New Yorker mm. in the 2000s. Mm -hmm. And the stories untold and unexamined are the stories of black people, sometimes Americans, sometimes in other countries, sometimes in the past, sometimes in an ambiguous future. She's writing all over the place, but it's about the black experience. All through time. All yeah. through time. Yeah. And always. And so taking the kind of the pieces of the things that you can never know, all the little phrase of stories lost and, and mm -hmm. people and loves and all of these things and kind of doing the the ultimate work of taking these lost stories and compositing them into a digestible narrative so yeah. that it can fill in the gap of the history that has been honestly robbed yeah. from from all of us. Um, she's doing the the literary work to kind of create that that little composite to fill those gaps. As and that's what you said. It's like a tragedy. And that's why it sucks. It like, we should have known about this. Absolutely. That's like the point of this. Yeah. Although, she, I mean, she does say, and this is the criticism that she gets from people who don't understand what she's going for. It's like, this is the point. Yeah. So she says, I'm writing for black people. She says, in the same way that Tolstoy was not writing for me, a 14-year-old black girl from Lorraine, Ohio. Mm. She doesn't apologize the fact that she's not writing about white people. There's white people in her books but the point is not to have whiteness being put into your story. Right, not, not tailored for a certain audience with the assumption, and this becomes a, a great uh, focus of the documentary, is that the idea that a lot of popular media is just tailored for a white audience. It's under the assumption that it will be consumed primarily by a white audience no matter what it is. And or if it's a, yeah. or if it's about the black experience, it's in relation to yeah, the white exactly. experience. It, it is still it's tainted in a way of, of but we have to it's got to come from and we got to we got to allow for this perspective, yeah. which is you wouldn't do conversely on the other side. Well, why we need more. Uh, we need more, uh, which we kind of are now, which is kind of yeah. the great thing is now we're bringing in all of these, we're, we're trying to, to make popular media a little a bit more inclusive. I think that's pretty obvious uh, mm -hmm. uh, and the way we're going. So that, so that is, that is good. But at the time through the seventies, eighties and nineties, no, that was not happening. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how her childhood and growing up and her education and all of that filters into her experiences and then how she then transmutes that into the literary scene, mm -hmm. and then how it's not appreciated, and then later it's appreciated, and now, like you said, it's become right. more in the forefront of like, how do we have underrepresented, or how do we give voice to an experience that isn't white? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I, I was left just with a sense of, you know, I'm not, I have not read any of her books, but just from the pieces that, and she's in the documentary talking mm -hmm. about her work, why she did what she did, and how it came to be. What I what I so appreciated about her is that she was so unconcerned with what how anybody felt because of what she was writing. Right. That she was just doing the ultimate truth. She was just writing the truth, what she knew, who she was, who her people were, mm -hmm. just the truth. And if you couldn't handle that, you had a, there was going to be some conflict with it. But it really had more to do with you than the that, than the actual material of the book itself. And that's what she says. She says, "I'm writing for black people, but anybody can read right. it." It's it's yeah. It, it's it's can you empathize with a human being? Like, and then you can then that is your way in to start to grow the empathy here and start to understand to a degree. The kind of the point here is that you will never understand, and you need to be able to s say that and understand. I will never be black in America. Yeah. I will never be black in America. I will never experience what mm -hmm. that is like. So for me to speak on 
or to have any influence on on what that experience is to no and and that's she's where, also that's not and we'll see in as her work progresses in a lot of her stories certain members of the black community have also criticized her because she's not just lauding that experience she's demonizing a lot of elements oh, yeah. of it oh yeah and throwing a critical eye on saying if you just look at the black community as this thing here's some here's some things that need work done yeah as not just this is the truth man yeah. can you handle it like whether this, you're in it or not yeah, yeah absolutely so here we go into her life now that we've set it up who is she she was born in 1931 her real name is Chloe Anthony Wofford so totally she was, different totally <laughs> different <laughs> she was born during the depression horrible time to uh. be born uh, her family moved from six different apartments. Her mm. parents' families, her grandparents, had left the South to avoid sharecropping, and their ancestry is mired in racism in the South mm -hmm. against them. So it was the, the kind of like the the black exodus up north. I want to speak about this because mm -hmm. I this had me thinking very heavily about what I was taught about race relations in my in my younger education. Mm -hmm. um, in the film, I was struck by this just because as a child, I had seen these artworks, but they use these artworks by Jacob Lawrence that illustrate the Black Exodus. I had seen these in elementary school. Or Great Migration. The Great Migration. Black migration yeah. um, I had seen these these artworks as a child in elementary school to, to you know, just like civics, what's happened in the country, you know, mm -hmm. like just kind of getting my, <laughs> barely getting my feet wet as a fourth grader, like, right. oh, oh, where did I go? Um so I'd seen these portraits before. I had to look up the, the artist for the show today, but I had seen these before. So it, it immediately grabbed me. It was like, you saw this as a third grade, you know, whatever mm -hmm. it was. And you've been thinking about this somewhere in the back of your mind this whole time. And now through Toni Morrison's story, you get actual people. Uh, you get a real sense of character, like mm -hmm. what it was really like bringing these. Uh, and it's it's done in a... In a kind, almost silhouette esque fashion, there's color, but it's very block. It's very block. This started to really give detail, uh, yeah. just in the documentary itself. Like, oh my gosh, yes, here it is, finally. Uh, where before it was just this, kind of blocked yeah. out colors in my mind, the Toni Morrison doc really added all the detail. Mm -hmm. Really made these people come alive for me. But also throughout the film, I thought this interesting. They use other pieces of artwork from uh, an artist named Carl uh, Walker. Mm -hmm. She has an exhibit at the Broad Museum in Los Angeles called Africant, um, where she uses a almost cartoonish style silhouette, por like portraits of black culture, primarily through the 1800s uh, and, and uh, into the civil rights movement. That can be quite graphic and, and a bit disturbing, um, but is to meant to illustrate, again, the stories that were lost, uh, yeah. the, the pain that was lost. Uh, everything that we can't know. So this this is almost a cartoonish style that is in silhouette, so it doesn't give you any yeah. of the, quite the detail, but you get a very clear picture of what's happening. Um, so they use these throughout the Toni Morrison mm. documentary as well, yeah. which really was striking to me because when I saw it at the Broad, that exhibit was so... It's it's hard. It's, it's really yeah. hard to go in that room. If you've been there, you know what I'm saying. If you haven't, please well, go I'll check put it links, out. I'll put links in the show notes Absolutely. to these images as well. Yeah. Um, but that's, um, yeah, so that's the life that her parents and grandparents have gone through and have seen. And so she said her father saw the lynching of two men mm -hmm. before they moved and he worked three jobs for 17 years. Uh, she said that she grew up in basically a racist household with more than a child's share of contempt for white people, mm. so, more so from her father. But she did say 
she described her father as a perfectionist and somebody who was proud of his work. And this is a quote from her. I remember my daddy taking me aside when he worked as a welder and telling me that he welded a perfect seam that day. And after welding, he put his initials on it. I said, Daddy, no one will ever see that. And he said, yes, but I'll know it's there. So that is maybe where she got Mm -hmm. a sense, even though there was this hatred or contempt, like she says, there was still a personal ownership of what you contribute outside of that. Yeah. At age two, they couldn't pay their rent and the landlord just set their apartment on fire. Whoa. That situation in regards to fire will come about later in her life. Mm. But kind of where she got this storytelling from, she said her family was always telling ghost stories, traditional folk tales. Her grandmother would tell them stories and things during daily tasks. So she got that throughout her childhood Mm -hmm. and was picking up those pieces. In high school, she worked as a house cleaner and she worked as a secretary for the library in Lorain, Mm -hmm. Ohio. Mm -hmm. And then Much later on in her life in the 90s when she was getting all these awards and getting known for things, Lorraine, Ohio wanted to honor her and they were going to name a street after her. She was like, I don't care about that. Name a room in the library after me. So that's the only thing in Lorraine that is named after Toni Morrison is is the Toni Morrison room in the library. And in junior high, one of her teachers sent a note home to her mother, which direct quote, you and your husband would be remiss in your duties if you did not see to it that this child goes to college. So she did have some backing Mm -hmm. in her schools for her uh, to make something of her interest in intelligence and education. She was reading all these classic works of literature and everything. Her father takes on another job so that they can afford the tuition for her to go to college. Her mom also gets a job. So she attends Howard University in uh, Washington, D.C. in 49. So now we're into the 40s, and this is a, one of the historically black colleges. But I was surprised, because in the stuff I was reading, it was like segregated even within her school. I had heard this before, but something like the they called a paper bag test, where it was like, the paper bag is this level of brownness, and if you're darker than that, you have particular but- privileges and responsibilities. And if you're that lo- shade of black, then you're in a certain sort of class. And then if you're even lighter, oh, wow. you're even more... In the doc, she gives a point of view on segregation that I had never thought about before. And she said that and she was growing up, she looked at it as a joke. Mm-hmm. It was so silly to her. It was like, it was so small. It was mm-hmm. like, do you really have to go around manufacturing realities? Is that how, aren't there bigger things that we, okay, man. You know, yeah. like it, that, that, that being the attitude, oh man, I, I could almost see it in today's culture about like the things that we know are wrong, mm-hmm. but we laugh about because it's almost just so cartoonish anyway. And and I could almost see how, you know, as she the decades go, how things smooth slowly. And I go, mm-hmm, I see how we've gotten where we are and we're not that far apart. Uh, something like this can happen. And this is uh, this is how teenagers would react to it. That, that was a point of view that I thought was particularly interesting is that she's a child growing up and just kind of feeling like it's this is so... You, and going into so university yeah, and yeah. people around... Like she was saying, there was one of her friends, she was saying, oh yeah, I, I have a friend who works at the Goodman Theater. And her friend who went to Howard University was so confused because she was like, there's nobody that's black that works there. Like not realizing like, oh, Tony has a white friend who works at the Goodman (laughs) Theater. It was like, how can you even, she didn't even consider that that was a possibility. This is where she changes her name to Tony, which is her middle name is uh, the Catholic, you know, her Catholic is St. Anthony. Oh, I see. So that's where Tony comes from. But her her real first name, Chloe, I guess she said people had trouble saying it or figuring out what it was. 
I don't know if it was that popular. So that's when she changed her name and just kept it as that for oh. the rest of her life and her writing and whatnot. Okay. Um, at this point is where she studies under this guy, Alan Locke, who was the dean, in quotes, of the Harlem Renaissance, just meaning he was the guy who was promoting the flourishing of African-American arts in Harlem in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the people that she studied under at Howard. So you can see that mm -hmm. influence of her. And for a time, she toured in the – she was in the drama department, and they did a tour in the South with the Howard University players. Mm -hmm. And so she saw even more so the segregation where they'd, like, be late to a, a colored motel and weren't allowed in and had to stay at a local church. Good Lord. You know, um, after this, now we're moving into the 50s, which I would consider, like, her more of her inspiration and education. Yeah. Uh, she gets her master's at Cornell in 53. Mm. She wrote her thesis on Faulkner and Wolfe, the two authors, which she found they, of the Southern authors, took black people the most seriously. Well, I just wanted to interject yeah, yeah. quickly is that in the documentary, she said she wanted to write her thesis on a couple of black characters. And mm -hmm. I can't remember the works now, but very, very like you know, boilerplate works like Mark Twain yeah, or something yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. And that her uh, professor refused to let her do that. And she would pick like four characters that she just kind of wanted to discuss about where, how they fit in to American literature. And he was uh, like, there's no, there's no literary yeah. criticism here. There's nothing worth writing yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just thought that that was quite interesting. Yeah. Already she's getting the pushback yeah. of like, you can't yeah. even talk about some tangential stereotyped black slave character. That makes you, you nervous enough you won't even let this, the, the, this, analyze this kid that. talk about it. Like, yeah. what, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. So after, after she gets out of Cornell, gets her master's degree, writes her thesis, all of that, she teaches at Texas Southern University for two years and then goes back to Howard to teach. So she's got her English degree. She's mm -hmm. becoming an English teacher. This is her track. She marries this guy in Washington, D.C., an architect named Harold in 58, and they have two sons. And at this time that she's teaching at Howard, she taught this guy, Stokely Carmichael, mm -hmm. who was very influential in the civil rights movement. He, he was a, one of the creators of the Black Power movement. He was a part mm -hmm. of the original Freedom Riders, mm -hmm. um, which we'll see later. She does not get involved in the marches and the protests and the sit-ins and all of that stuff. She is able to accomplish that through her writing. Mm -hmm. But this guy was the, targeted by the FBI. And if anybody remembers our chaos episode, mm -hmm. we're talking about Charles Manson. He was targeted by the COINTEL program where they were suppressing. Remember how we were talking yeah, about yeah, yeah, yeah. suppressing black voices and whatnot? And he fled to Ghana Whoa. Um, because of the, the pressure that they were putting on him for this wow. stuff. Look at that. Yeah. Look at that. <laughs> the connections. Um, so... She, at this point, at Howard University, joins a writer's group, and now we see the start of her writing. And she has this idea for a book, which is about this girl who all she wants is to have blue eyes. Right. And that be then will later become her first book, The Bluest Eye, but not until a decade after. At this point, she was saying, I wanted to read this book, and no one had written it, so I thought that maybe I would write it in order to read it. And like we talked about at the very beginning, what makes her different? What is this novel that she's talking about that nobody's writing, and it's a novel devoid of of the white gaze. This one, this really hit me because she sums it up just with a sentence in mm -hmm. the documentary. She said that she had come into contact at some point. I can't remember the exact specifics of, of the memory, but that um, somebody that she, a, a black girl that she had known very, very young, cried her eyes out because she realized there was no God because she could never have blue eyes and that it was a very real thing that she witnessed and mm -hmm. that was the spark for the book itself, that a child lost faith in God because God made her black. Just 
the that concept alone is like I want to read that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who's going to write it? Who, Nobody but my me. My God. I didn't know a book quite like that mm-hmm. even existed. Yeah. Um, uh, just that sentence alone, just sent, just in the theater, was just like chilling to me. It's like, oh, my God. There's, a, <laughs> there's an incredibly adorned, like, awarded book about this mm-hmm. horribly, horribly sensitive subject tackling some, uh, a... a the extent of the of the human condition like my god the the implications of just the simple sentence that she said in the documentary was just like i didn't even hear the next two minutes i'm just sitting there thinking about what's in this book yeah that's toni morrison that's all her books and they all come at what is this like from all these different angles because she was saying even in the works so ralph ellison is a famous black author at the time who had this book called invisible man and even Frederick Douglass, she was just saying it's all in relation to white people mm-hmm. and white exactly. experience and what exactly. the white. She said she experience. can hear Frederick Douglass holding back when she when she uh, reads him, and then that is what she kind of uses to align herself. It's like, no, I'm not holding back. I'm, I'm, I'm me. I'm speaking about me, to me, for me, for yeah. for you, for yeah. yeah. I am. I'm human. Uh, yeah, it, it was... It, yeah, she said the title of Ralph Ellison's book was Invisible Man, and the question for me was, invisible to whom? Right. Not to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, exactly, yes. Yeah. So she has this idea for this book when she's working just still as a teacher at Howard in the 50s. Now it's 64. This is her life shift, where she shifts a little bit more from teaching into editing. She mm-hmm. divorces in 64. Remember, she has two young sons. Right. Um, in the, now, in the doc, they kind of go over this. They say he left. They don't really t- touch on it. They, they cut to some uh, interview that she gave a little bit later mm-hmm. in life just saying it was horrible. It was a horrible thing that we had to go through. And, the, and I don't really remember the details of anything more than, than that other than it was just a tenacious time. But I don't really. Yeah, the, she, I, yeah, she doesn't necessarily go into it. She was just oh. like, we were not the right people for each other. Mm. And so it's just one of those things where, and also imagine in this time, in 1964, being yeah. a single black mom with two kids, yeah. moving away with all of your responsibilities on your own. Oh my God. Um, she moved to Syracuse, New York to work for Random House, which is his publisher. She ended up working there for 20 years. And this time frame between the 60s and 70s is where she takes the time to write her first novel and write these novels. But keep this in the back of your mind. She's also having a full time job, being an editor at a yep. major publishing house, and people with their having two kids in, yep. who yep. are going through elementary, middle, and high yep. school, being I mean, on her own. God. In 1968, four years after, she moves straight to New York City, though she lived in Queens, to work for Random House. Some things that she said was like she would scribble paragraphs on the steering wheel while she was stuck in traffic. She would take notes while they were on the subway, just like right. she called it stealing time. And the other thing, like we talked about, where she is not now being involved quite necessarily in all of the boots on the ground efforts of the civil rights movement. What yeah. she's doing in her editing career is giving those voices to the voiceless. She said, and this is a quote, I wasn't marching. I didn't go to anything. I didn't join anything. But I could make sure there was a published record of those who did march and did put themselves on the line. There's a moment early in the documentary that kind of showed you the spark of maybe perhaps how she wanted to become a writer. It was a memory very early in childhood. It was her and her brother out on the sidewalk, um, and they were going to write the F word. And so they get, they write the F and then they get, they write the U and then they start to see, and the mom bursts out of the house. Ah, you stop. And, and buckets of water and they're scrubbing and, and it's just shocking. And the kids don't know what's happened. She's, she said, I had no idea of what, 
what had really just happened. I didn't even know the word. I didn't even know what the word meant. All I knew, though, once it was over, that if this word I didn't even know made my mom that angry, words have power. Mm-hmm. I just th- I, th- I thought that really encapsulated just the, exactly what you're saying here, why she didn't ha- feel the need to go marching out in the streets is because her words did more than marching out in the streets for her, for her than yeah. ever, that she ever could. Mm-hmm. Um, this, what do you have to give to the cause? This is what she had. Uh, going out and marching in the streets wouldn't have made anywhere near of an impact as the actual written word that she put down. Yeah. And so now that she knows that words have power, she's in this position yes. to do this. I found this through just history. Most American novels were urban and male. Mm. And a lot of her works are suburban or rural or Midwest mm-hmm. and black women. Mm-hmm. So completely different from any of the other subject matter that was being written. Uh, black women did not have a vehicle. Um, no. It, it, and the more that we, the more that we accept this and realize this, that that not just black women, that, that there were only a couple of stories that that I don't know who, but we were willing to accept, we were willing to put out into the world. There was a very limited. Like you said, it, like we said, it was in relation to the white experience. Yeah. She said. Most of these things, if you were to then write, or if there was, you know, books or, you know, Maya Angelou's poems or whatever, it's mm-hmm. like in, it's, is it, it's seen as something sociological or a revelation of lives. Like she said, I didn't want it to be a teaching tool for white people. Right. I wanted it to be true, not from outside the culture looking in. She said, I didn't care. Is it going to make me feel bad? Is it going to make me feel good? I'm going to make it as readable as I can, but I'm not going to pull any punches. Yeah. Um, the truth, man. Yeah. So the second point of the reason, how did her works change the conversation? They were a lot considered too radical for the climate. So Mm -hmm. like for one of her books, she wanted to have a publication party and nobody came except for a news crew, (laughs) which gave her a ton of publicity, but they thought it was going to be this big scandal, you know, with riots and chaos and whatever. And then when she was editing Muhammad Ali's autobiography, and that was a big scene because department stores feared looting and riots and all that stuff. Yeah. But there was one that agreed to it and nothing happened. It was fine, you know. <laughs> but again, like that is how her works were changing. People were like, something's happening here. This is too much. She talked um, a little bit about Ali. It was just kind of a cute moment. And it was funny because at, as soon as she came on the screen in present day in the documentary, I instantly felt a warmness to her. Uh, she reminded me of my literature teachers and my art teachers in high mm-hmm. school and middle school. Um, I gravitated towards just my, my, my female literature and art teachers. And she felt, I was like, oh, you're, you're just like them. You're just like them. I wanted to be closer to her. You know, like something like that. And and she gets to the part talking about editing the Muhammad Ali autobiography. Mm-hmm. And she kind of like laughs about this because everybody's kind of got the like wonders, well, how'd you get a handle on him? It's Muhammad Ali. How did you? She says that she just treated him. She knew by the first moment she met him that he respected older women. Mm-hmm. And so that if she just used that, if she just came in and said, well, and treated him like, Almost like like That's how a, he was raised. Yeah, exactly. That he snapped to it immediately. That the moment she implored it, mm-hmm. 
it was like unwritten code. He just knew what, and he and he did everything mm-hmm. she said after that. It was like he was a child. It was so. It was so. And and her explaining that, I'm like, it's happening to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're doe eyed listening to. Everything. I am. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, and and this isn't even related to anything. This is just the general tone of the thing. I wanted so much to just be laying on my couch with some chicken noodle soup and be like <laughs> being sick and just like going to bed. Like that's. I wanted that so much. To, I don't know what it was. Yeah. I, it made me very, it lulled me uh, in yeah. a way that I hadn't been lulled me in a while. Some yeah. people might find it boring. I don't know, but I felt <laughs> it just like, oh, I want to put this on when I'm sick or it's rainy. Yeah. The interesting contrast that you bring up with that is she, in her books, undermines the myth of black cohesiveness, mm-hmm. which is what they call it, where like with the whiteness off stage, she shows even though you got a warm and fuzzy feeling from her, black people fighting each other, murdering, raping, breaking mm-hmm, up marriages, mm-hmm. burning down houses. These stories are tragic and awful. They also show nurturing fathers and matriarchs who love them. You know, there is a, it's, she loves the complications of it. Mm-hmm. Once you can take it away from how it relates to every other piece of work's experience. It's security like, out of this. Yeah, it's the good and the bad, the whole package yes. of what it is. To be in, to be a part of that. That's I think that's why I kind of grow towards her because I really want somebody to tell me the the truth. And man, I feel like she's given me that spoon fed, just like this is what you've been missing. And I'm like, yes, it is. But she's yes, also not. She, like I said, it's she doesn't have the agenda. Me, but I, and I'm like, that is the point because I'm looking for authenticity. I'm looking for the truth. I'm looking for the thing that is not that I don't have a concept of. I'm not trying to understand myself more. I'm trying yeah. to understand <laughs> the other problems in the world. And so when I find somebody like Toni Morrison, I'm instantly like, yes, please give it to me. Yes, you're filling in all the gaps. You're you're filling in all mm-hmm. of my ignorance. Please, please, please impart your values onto me. Yeah. So finally, she gets to. It's 1970. This is her decade of effort of things not being noticed. This is when The Bluest Eye, that book yes. she had the idea for when she was working at Howard, comes out. Not much fanfare at all. At this point, she's almost 40 years old when her first book comes out. Sells 2,000 copies. There's a bunch of tra- – there's rape. There's pain. There's prostitution, like we talked about, the hard stuff mm-hmm. in there. Her first original copy, I thought this was a genius marketing move. Uh, If you find one of these, you'll know it instantly because she just has the first two paragraphs of the book on the cover and then half a sentence of the third paragraph. And then when you open it up, the rest of the book starts. Because she was like, I don't know if people are going to read this or what. So, like, you want to get them. And instead of getting them from the first page, get them from the cover. Yeah. It's just the start of the book. Yeah. And cut off halfway. That is so, that is such a hook. Yeah. Uh, and who else has done anything like that hardly? Like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and because she's had her eye on the publishing and editing world, she kind of knows the industry Absolutely. and how to and how to set that up. She also starts which I thought was very interesting. And a lot of her works and this is where if you get into start reading them, they're very deep, they're very metaphorical. There's a ton of interpretations, there's tons of critiques and criticisms and literary papers and a million things written about these works and analyzing them. But in this, the start of it, which you can interpret it a bunch of different ways, she starts, and I don't know if you remember from the Dr. Seuss episode, mm. we saying how he was in retaliation to the Dick and Jane stories. It was like, see Jane run, Jane runs fast, those kind of yeah, works. Yeah, yeah. So she takes a paragraph from one of these Dick and Jane stories yeah. and just has it. And so it's like all of those lines spaced out and then does it again, but it's all the punctuation removed. And so it's just running together. And then the oh. third paragraph, there's not even any spaces and it's just a string of letters. Oh. And you could interpret that however you want it to be. But a lot of people interpret it as like, oh, this is like the classic white picket fence 
white family, two and a half kids, you know, as it's unraveling and your, your perspective on what you're reading <laughs> is starting to, to, and being like, this was not for us. Oh man. You know, uh, there's a million different ways to interpret it, but it's just an interesting way to start. And some of those lines are interspersed like at the tops of chapters of the bluest eye oh, wow. of the Dick and Jane stories. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That is interesting. Yeah, so her works, like I said, are very literary, very involved, um, very lyrical and beautiful writing, as well as terse vernacular dialogue. Yeah. So it's a whole cornucopia, I guess, yes. of, of ways of writing. But like I said, didn't do much when it first came out in 70. It did gain prestige because it was added to the City University of New York curriculum. Hmm. And uh, this is a funny quote from where she said, required reading, she said, therein lies the success. Um, but she's still doing her editing stuff so she's encouraging other black writers in this time Uh and there's a writer gail jones that she really helped out a lot and this one critic said these works should say by gail jones as told by tony morrison because she really (laughs) gave him the business as far as an editor yeah and helping him out and then in 1974 i was fascinated by this which I didn't know anything about, and it's insane and amazing. She came up with this. It's a nonfiction book called The Black Book, and it's an anthology of African-American life and history. This is fascinating, and I want to go look at this. It's a collection of artifacts that's tracing black life from slavery to the 1940s. She doesn't focus on anybody that's a leader. It's people that simply woke up every day existing in America and what that entailed at the time. Her mom's face is on the cover. Yeah. yeah. Documents and articles and reports and transcripts and letters and every single picture. It's a collage. It it, it looked exquisite. I really want Mm -hmm. to go and get a physical copy of it and just kind of thumb through it and and see it. Yeah, I'll post a link to it, definitely. But it got a lot of pushback because it's like her her, her publisher was like, nobody's going to want this. It's, It's hard to reckon with. And that, I, I again, just, I think she can't get any more closer to the truth than the actual documentation, mm-hmm. and that's what it is. And that, that's here not it your is. thing. Like, here if you don't want to, yeah, if you don't want to read a fictional account or more of a lyrical or metaphorical analysis of it, pick up the black book and get the actual. Yeah, here are the documents, and it still is going to make you feel just as worse, maybe worse. Yeah. The aversion to the truth, the hiding from the truth, the insecurity about the role we play. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's just. Sad. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have the exact quote for this, but she was saying a lot of the things that she wrote. She's like, there's no monuments, there's no murals, there's no, you know, there's not even a bench on the side of the road in regards to slavery right. and, and where things happen and when. There's all these famous battlefield sites and famous thing, you know, where people sign documents and whatnot. But where is even the bench on the road for? Yeah. These things. Where so we'll are get, all yeah. these people? Is there is there a Vietnam memorial with all the names somewhere touring the United? You no, know, mm-hmm. we don't even know. We couldn't even. So we'll get back to the bench on the side of the road at the end and some of her legacy. But just keep that in the back of your mind. The same year that the Black Book comes out, though, she writes her second fiction book called Sula, which is about a black Ohio neighborhood through the eyes of two female best friends. Mm. Which again, nobody's writing anything like this. Mm-hmm. And then in seventy seven. She wrote Song of Solomon, which is this epic multi-decade tale of this black man living in America. This was sort of the breakthrough for her because this won the National Books Critics Circle Award. Also was a book for Book of the Month Club, which Ah. we talked about with Old Yeller and which uh, we have the young adult version 
the links for. But for this, this was she was the first black person since 1939 to be in Book of the Month what? Club, which is almost 40 years. Oh my god! And it comes out every month. Book and of there's the five month. Selections. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you couldn't pick one black person. <laughs> Come on. I just had a thought. Maybe this is out of nowhere, but it it, it seems to me when you pick up. A Toni Morrison novel, mm-hmm. you can go into it with two frames of thought. Are you going in to find out about somebody else, or are you going in to find out about you? Mm-hmm. And if you're going in to find about you, you're probably going to have a rough time. If you're right. going in to find out about somebody else, what's it like for someone else different than me, other than me? Maybe you'll get it. Well, for us who are white men. Right. Right, but that's how I approach so much material. It's like I want—I'm mm-hmm. I'm, not—I'm tired of me. I want to know about somebody else's struggle from their perspective, totally yeah. and fully, not catered to be digestible to me. Because then instantly it's clearanced. Yeah, I want to know when what it's even, like. Yeah. yeah, she even said, "I like you said with Frederick." She's like, "I knew when." Black writers were writing for a white audience because they were explaining yeah. things that didn't need explained. Right, right, right. She says that in the documentary. It's just like a, it's cut through the crap. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm yeah. on. Force this. me I'm, to I'm, do the I'm work. I'm on this tea right now. I'm on, I, this is this is. I'm on what she's putting down. I love it. Yeah. So at this time, also as far as like her tenacity, like you're saying, she's she's working still as a teacher, as well as doing the editing stuff, as well as writing her own works. So she's working at Yale, SUNY Purchase, Bard, Rutgers, and SUNY Albany because she needs more money as well because she's raising these two kids yeah. also in this time frame. We forget that in all of that, she's she has her own life with all these other responsibilities. There was an interview that I read from 1998 where she said, when I wanted a raise in my employment world, they would give me a little woman's raise and I would say, no, this is really low. And they would say, but, and I would say, no, you don't understand. You're the head of the household. You know what you want. That's what I want. I'm on serious business now. This is not a girl playing. This is not a wife playing. This is serious business. I am the head of a household household. and I must work for my children. Absolutely. And they would give her a raise. That is, that almost exactly is Uh is a documentary. (laughs) They probably took that in. Yeah. Yeah. Now she's coming into it. It's the 1980s. Her book Tar Baby comes out, which is her first contemporary novel. Mm. And it's about a fashion model who falls in love with this drifter and she's obsessed with beauty Mm. as it relates to blackness. Okay. Um, she also becomes the first. Because they don't talk about all of them. So that, yeah, this is yeah, one I'm yeah. not, you know. This so is, I'm going to, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm giving yeah. you little tidbits if, if awesome. a novel strikes your fancy. Uh, she is the first black woman in this year to appear on Newsweek since Ooh. 1954. Ooh. Again, another 30 yeah. plus years of. Finally. Um, God. She. This is the 80s. She leaves Random House in 83. So she's done with her editing work at the, and working for a book company and starts just doing writing on her own and teaching. So now she's teaching at Princeton and Cornell. Then in 87, and this is her big book, and this is the one that probably most everybody would recommend you start with, and it's called Beloved. Mm -hmm. And it's based on a true story she learned about writing the Black Book, which is about this uh, slave, Margaret Garner, who escaped to freedom in the North, and there was still the law that you could go up and get them if you found them and bring them back. She kills her infant daughter after being recaptured because she doesn't want her kid to live that life. Oh, my God. This one, this, I mean, it's pretty, they're all, I mean, they're all pretty rough, but this, this, this one, one is they really spent some rough. time on this yeah. one. Yeah. And just people say, like, the scene where she ends up having to kill her daughter hmm. is the most insane, visceral, heart-wrenching yeah. piece of literature that you might read. Just crazy. This book, though, 
remember, she hasn't won anything. She's been on Newsweek, like we said, but still no awareness of yeah. her work. And now it's been two and people full People are decades. starting, like, privately or like, you know, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. So it's been two full decades. Well, I mean, it's been pretty incredible. She ought to be up there, you know? <laughs> she got snubbed by the National Book Awards. She didn't win it, although everybody thought she was going to. Yeah. So then in 88, the next year, there was a letter that was posted in the New York Times by 48, 48 Black writers, thinkers, leaders that were saying like, hey, give Toni Morrison something. Yeah. Y'all are crazy. So then that very next year, she wins the Pulitzer Prize for Beloved. Right. A lot of people think, you know, and there were some people that were like, she didn't need that letter. But obviously the people at the Pulitzer Prize paid attention. Yeah. So yeah, now it's like, yeah. well, would she have gotten the Pulitzer Prize had the letter not gotten it? I don't know. You know, yeah. That's... Regardless, now that it's been freaking 20 years of putting in the work in the 1990s is kind of what I call awards season. Like she starts, but she's still making stuff. So in 92, she comes up with this book, Jazz, which is like the second part of the trilogy of Beloved, Mm. where it recenters F. Scott Fitzgerald jazz age in Harlem Mm. and the black experience Mm -hmm. of that. In 1992, she writes a nonfiction thing called Playing in the Dark, Whiteness and the Literary Imagination, which is probably what she wanted her thesis to be on Mm. in Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a critical study of black characters in literature. Definitely. And so if that's something you're interested, I'll put a link to that, but it's called Playing in the Dark. Yeah, I bet that's exactly um, what that ended up turning into. <laughs> then in 1993, huge, she wins the Nobel Prize for Literature for her whole body of work. <laughs> um, she's the first black woman of any nationality to win. And also <laughs> There was the- an interview, there was like a critic or something, There was, and they said... It was only in uh, it was only in Princeton. Would you go into a coffee shop and say your friend won the Nobel Prize? And they go for what? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a literature. Oh, <laughs> but I, I just thought that was interesting. Just like if you're like in those, it just Circles. even those weird little local, even like the yeah. coffee shop of Princeton is still just like for what? <laughs> but huge deal. Yeah, of course. Oh my god. Um, yeah. I will say, though, I don't know if you remembered from the very beginning of this episode, I mentioned how her apartment burned down at two years old. Right. So here it comes again. Okay, Sam. A couple months after she wins the Nobel Prize, after all these dozens of years of work, her her whole house burns down. Oh, my God. Old manuscripts, her kids' report cards, like oh all my her God. memorabilia, the, oh. stuff like that. Oh, it's no. It's just gone. And then a couple months later, the day before her 63rd birthday, her mom dies. Oh. Uh. So wild life of just like your highest high the most you could ever get the nobel prize for your body of work in that same year two of the biggest parts of your life just gone yeah but she soldiers on i mean she keeps going oprah chose songs they don't talk about that i don't think in the no they don't don't really get i don't remember anything like that in the Mm -hmm. wow fascinating fascinating because she's just like boom and she doesn't really want to talk i mean people bring it up and she's like nah i ain't gonna talk about that you know (laughs) um but the, again, like I said, awards. Like, you want to talk? She pulls out a giant mirror. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, more of her awards that come about are because Oprah now just started her book club in 1996. Here we go, baby. Yeah. 
So Song of Solomon, which is one of her earlier works, yeah. gets chosen as the second book in Oprah's book club. And now we have the Oprah effect where anything that Oprah says turns to gold. Yeah, So this baby. gives her a lot of recognition. People are now going and, oh, she's got six other books that this she's written. This is great. They interview Oprah in the dock and she's, and, and you get kind of an insight of just like how Oprah operates and you're like, oh, she knows exactly who is in her book club and what mm-hmm. they're thinking and what they're doing. And she, and she so perfectly was like, oh man, I got these people in this book club. They, they're starting to like starting to get their 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 literary uh, feet under them a little bit. Yeah. They're starting to walk, and they think I'm in a, I'm in something that's safe. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a group that we'll all go together. We'll just start and then hit them with Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's all a bunch of middle aged white, not all, but like a largely middle aged white women who've never Long been Island exposed to anything and, like yeah, this. Yeah, uh, and and in that, just the brilliance of the planning and and foresight from Oprah was just like, yeah. And Oprah just picks what she likes. Yeah, like she'll pick books that are classics, and then they go back on the New York Times bestsellers list. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she yeah. picks books from the eighties that she's like, oh yeah, I like this, and then boom, right back in. Jeez. The next year. Toni Morrison's still right in 97. She comes out with a book called Paradise, which is about this idyllic all-black town in rural Oklahoma, mm-hmm. ruled by fear. It's more about men and women in the black community. And uh, it was originally going to be called War because it's mm. very intense. Mm. Almost like, what is this? what would this utopia be? And it was uh, banned in certain prisons because they were afraid it was going to cause a riot. <laughs> Um, this is also when she she, yeah. she framed uh, I think an article about that mm-hmm. uh, and put it in her bathroom. <laughs> she's making waves now. <laughs> she's, she's like, winning look, awards look, and- look, I'm making all these people tear the place up. You know, <laughs> just like just because I wrote something down. <laughs> yeah, she now appears on the cover of Time, the second female writer and the second black writer of fiction ever. Good Lord. in the late '90s. Oprah was so infatuated with her that the film based on Beloved, the Margaret Garner uh, who kills her daughter, comes out in 1998, Mm -hmm. didn't do as well from the film version, but that didn't stop her Oprah should have just produced it. I'm just going to say that shouldn't have been in it. Should have just produced it, put her name on it. Yeah, get an actor. Neither here nor there. (laughs) (laughs) Love Oprah. Love Oprah. But also, it's one of those things where it's like, maybe it's too much for the visuals. Maybe you maybe, just have to yeah. read it and absorb maybe. it and take it in. in maybe we can medium. take another stab at a cinematic approach in another few years or something. Like, maybe another, maybe it's going to take a while, maybe another 20 years, mm-hmm. and, and maybe that would be... Well, I will say, though, in different. 2002, Tony wrote the text for an opera version, which I'll post a link that's to a, 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 clip of, a clip of that on YouTube. Because it is, like, opera to me is, like, yeah, really melodramatic. Cool. It's like a whole different tonal take on it i like that better Um, than a movie yeah yeah (laughs) so we're getting close to like kind of her changing up her works she did help edit this uh black author uh bambara died and didn't complete her novel (laughs) in 95 and so this novel that she did help complete uh tony morrison did is called those bones are not my child it's a novel about the atlanta child murders yes yes (laughs) here we go so if you want from a black author about no from the perspective way. of the mothers a fiction book which took a decade to write tony morrison finished it up it's called those bones are not my child if you think we're not all connected here it is because <laughs> we talked about that last episode <laughs> she works on a children's book with her son slade and continues to oh, do that cool um called the big box 
In 2008, if you remember, there's a thing called the Bench by the Road Project, based on her quote that she talked about. And the first bench that they put up was on Sullivan's Island in South Carolina, which was the point of entry for 40% of African slaves. And they're continuing to put benches and various memorials and landmarks in relation to things that happened in the South. That's awesome. In regards to slavery. And it's called the Bench by the Road Project. Her son, Slade, who she had been working with these children's books, dies of pancreatic cancer in 2010 at the age of 45. So that sort of set her on a whirlwind. She also got the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest award any civilian can get in the United States by President Obama. She regroups and says, the last thing my son would want was for me to be self-involved and narcissistic. So she writes two more books before she dies. In 2012, there's a book called Home, which is about a Korean war veteran in the 50s. And in 2015, God Help the Child, which is about the fashion and beauty industry and more about childhood trauma as it relates. Oh, kind of almost a return to form like like The Bluest Eye yeah. or The Tar Baby, where it's it's about like how do you relate right. to your identity and to what people have told you from the beginning. That was her last book in 2015. And then she died on August 5th of this, this year month. at 88 years old. I, the big thing, and I'll post a link to a, a little interview that she did, but her whole thing about like why she was doing this, and I think a good thing that summed it up was, this is a direct quote from her. She said, all of my life is doing something for somebody else, whether I'm being a good daughter, a good mother, a good wife, a good lover, a good teacher, and that's all that. The only thing I do for me is writing. That's really the real free place where I don't have to answer. Yeah. And the last little question, which people uh, might not know too much about, because her name's Tony, because Chloe was hard to pronounce. She stuck with Morrison from her from her husband, and she used it for the bluest eye, and then later regretted it. She said, wasn't that stupid? <laughs> I feel ruined. Uh, and then she said, the people that know her best call her Chloe. She mm. said, Chloe writes the books. Mm. So. Wow. I feel a little holer mm-hmm. as a human for having been exposed to this so uh this week. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, this is this is just t- touching my toe into a lake that I'm so happy that I've found and and we ought to be sharing this and be able we ought to be able to talk about th- these things and and talk about her work and yeah. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you. Thank you guys for listening this yeah. week. Well, I hope you got something out of it. This was this was super cool. Announcement. If you will hit up our Instagram at illiteratepod. Um, that's where we're going to have all of our, our news and our memes and our jokes and stuff. Um, and leave us a message if you... Shoot us a message. Yeah. You what well, anything. You know what's going on. You something you want us to touch on, something in the news that you think is interesting, a book, a movie, a TV show, a doctor any any of that stuff. Let We're us know it. what you're thinking about. Let us know what you're into. We're always looking for, for future show ideas, so come on and talk at us at illiterate pod Instagram. Alright guys, well we will talk to you next week. Alright. Bye. Bye.